I would say the most important thing is to expand your empathic range because I think more than any other capacity, empathy allows you to know who to get close to, who to remain distant from, how to make decisions based on facts, objective facts. It promotes longevity and your health and it allows you to listen and gain information from diverse people and diverse sources. So I think empathy is the most important capacity for a successful life personally and professionally, without a doubt. Welcome to the Modern Longevitarian Podcast. I'm Scott Stanfield, and I have the privilege and honor to interview some of the most successful people in the fields of human performance and longevity. You can listen to Modern Longevitarian on your favorite platforms. If you have Apple Podcasts, please do me a favor and subscribe. Empathy is the heart of diversity. In this episode, we learn that plus so much more from Dr. Arthur Sarah McCauley. I think that Dr. Sarah McCauley knocked the ball out of the park with his latest best-selling book titled Triumph of Diversity, How to Rejoice and Benefit from the Interconnectedness of Mankind. If you have not figured it out, you will very soon. And I'm a geek when it comes to understanding how empathy runs through every facet of life, ranging from friendships, marriage, parenting, leadership, negotiations, and now longevity. This entire podcast is a highlight reel, and you will hear where I short-circuited a couple times and was speechless. It's very rare for me. Prepare to have your mind blown, too. If I had to pick three things that really stick out as aha moments, I'd pick these. Number one, growing in life is about unlearning. Number two, we are addicted to negative self-talk. And number three, stress is not only shortening your life, but also your stress could be shortening the lives of the people you love the most and future generations. Dr. Sierra McCauley says, first, slow down and then build awareness when you slow down. After you do that, grab a pen and a clean sheet of paper in your journal to take some detailed notes. I encourage you to explore the links in the show notes on modernlongevitarian.com. Now, my interview with Dr. Arthur Sierra McCauley. Dr. Sierra McCauley, welcome to the Modern Longevitarian Podcast. Thank you, Scott. Good to be with you. This is going to be such an amazing episode. I'm really excited about the topics we'll be covering, and I've, and I've dove really deep into your work. And um, you know, I've been looking at, at empathy as a common thread, and uh, for all of life uh, mm-hmm. over the last probably seven years, starting with when I was exposed to emotional intelligence and with the book, Emotional Intelligence 2.0. And mm-hmm. um, so I'm really excited to, to dig in. And your, your latest book is titled The Triumph of Diversity, How to Rejoice and Benefit from the Interconnectedness of Mankind. So what led you to writing a book about diversity? Well, Scott, I think what led me to write this book, and it actually it's a sequel to a book that I wrote shortly before this called The Soulful Leader, which is that I'm, I'm very, very concerned about the leadership in our country politically and in the corporate world, but I'm very, very uh, concerned, actually somewhat brokenhearted, as I say in the book, about the increase in prejudice in our society. I mean, we, we have anti-Semitism at an all-time high, uh, we have um, Muslim hate crimes increased 67% in the last three years. Racism is at an all-time high. Prejudice against people of different uh, sexual orientations is at an all-time high. So I'm, I'm just very concerned that the direction we're going in is very, very dangerous. And I, I do believe that most Americans, I believe that most people have goodness in their hearts, but for some some reason, some collection of variables, anger and hatred have come out of the woodwork in the last few years, and, I, and I'm very worried about that in terms of it increasing and in the effect it's having on our population, and particularly the effect it's having on young people. Yeah, you know, I don't know, we haven't discussed this at all in, in any of our emails or you know, prior to the interview, but I come from a restaurant background. I was in the restaurant business for almost 30 years, and uh-huh. You know, there's a because there oh, there's so many entry level positions in, in restaurants. You have minorities, you have different races, uh, you have different genders. Obviously, you have sexual orientation, religion, nationality, all in one building. And you also have varying emotional intelligence, varying cultures, um, and 
I, I think that one of the great things that really helped me over the, the last years of that was my understanding of empathy and that somebody from South America may sound like they're angry when they're talking, but they're really just communicating the way that their culture communicates yes. and those things. Yes. And, and um, it, we get so caught up in the numbers in America, like, and we put people way down the list. They're mm-hmm. a priority, but they may be the fifth priority, where they probably should be the first priority people should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I, I think that's a very the, important point. Yeah, it it it's something that I've been really, really focused on for for a long time, and uh, and so you mentioned that you know the rates of uh, prejudice and discrimination and hate crimes and. and and racism has all increased in America recently. So can you, can you go a little bit further into that? Well, I think, it's, I think it's increased because the rhetoric we hear from politicians and from some people in leadership positions in, in the corporate world and, and in other aspects of career, careers uh, is that we hear a lot of sadism, a lot of hurtful dialogue. We, we've lost civility. We don't hear people talking in a civil way and accepting criticism and particularly constructive criticism and responding to it. I mean, in the political world today, if you say something critical of, of a colleague, um, you're lambasted on Twitter and social media for days. And we, we know that in certain newscasts, it's the same thing. And people on the left and right are guilty of this, this extreme position, this groupthink position, I call it, which is that, you know, groupthink is about black and white thinking, meaning that there's us and them and there's, there's always an enemy. And it really has little to do with bringing people together. It's, it's sort of ostracizing people and having an enemy to work against rather than bringing people together. And more than ever, we need to be bringing people together now, not separating and seeing Americans on one side and then others on another. We're, we're together. We're all in this together. But this exposure to hate speech trickles down. It, it makes people desensitized to, to people of color, to people of different sexual orientation, and to minorities in general. So leaders have a profound effect on the populace. When, when you speak in sadistic terms, when you're intentionally trying to hurt other people, when you speak about them in demeaning terms, it desensitizes the population, not everyone, but to a significant degree, it, it desensitizes the people listening to you. Because people look up to leaders. Leaders have an effect. And we know this from credible research that it, it does filter down. So the dialogue, the way people are talking in, in the last three or four years compared to the way we have talked in this country over many years is, is very, very different. We hear prejudice in, in people's comments all the time. It, it's every day Deme- demeaning and, and humiliating others. I mean, in a Kaiser poll just last year, Scott, Latinos and blacks said they no longer feel safe in the United States. They worry about going out in public just because their skin is different. And recently we've heard this from Chinese Americans because they're being criticized for, you know, this, the COVID-19 epidemic. They're, they're, being, they're being linked to, you know, this is a Chinese epidemic. This is a Kung flu. And one of my patients is a Chinese American, born and raised in Boston, graduate of Harvard. She was putting out her trash a few weeks ago and people started yelling at her, Kung flu, go home. And she said, this never happened in my life. Kung flu, go home. She was born in Boston. She's never even been to China. But this is what's happening right now. We pick a group, we pick an enemy, and then we accentuate that group as, as the ones who are making our lives miserable. When the, those people who are demeaning others, they're making their own lives miserable. When you have hatred in your heart, you certainly don't have peace. And, and another interesting study is, you know, the pe- people who say they hate Jews were 30 times more likely to hate Muslims. So these are just people who are hate mongers. Rather than making connections with people, and as you said, using empathy to see beyond the, the, the appearance of someone and into the heart and soul of someone else and understand their character, their customs, their culture, as, as you pointedly pointed out, we're not doing that at all. We're just making quick decisions based on old conditioning or current conditioning, what we're hearing about people. You know, as I said, I was worried about young people. Well, you know, they listen to their parents. So if you're in a home where people are talking about Jews or blacks or Muslims and making these kind of comments, or even about women, 
then, then they go out into the world thinking it's true because they're not capable as young children of examining the facts. And I think at, at this time in our culture, we need to make sure we're focused on the facts. You know, empathy is fact-oriented. It's really the capacity to understand and respond to the unique experiences of another. It's seeing beyond the surface into the uniqueness of that human being so that you, you see and understand a person's character. Now, empathy teaches you who to get close to and who to remain distant from. And that's where we need to be right now. Empathy is the heart of diversity. And diversity breeds diverse ideas. It exposes us to more in the world. It's why interfaith groups you know, love getting together with people of different religions because they learn from each other. And we need to be learning from each other, not demonizing the group that we think is the hated group. There's no one hated group and there's, that, that is really factual. And there's no one person that represents an entire group, an entire race, or an entire ethnicity. This reminds me of two, two stories. One before I was even um, born uh, is, you know, after Pearl Harbor attack, you know, that really brought us into World War II, you know, I, I've seen all the stories in the films and the documentaries about how all the Japanese Americans were gathered up yes. and put in these camps. You yeah. know, and what's happening now with the Chinese Americans is really not any different in a lot of ways. We still have the same mindset, but we're just not taking and, and putting them in the middle of the camp in the middle of nowhere and, and saying, you, you, you may have been a spy that helped this, you know, attack on uh, America happen. Yes. Um, you know, I also am, am old enough. You know, I was born in 1972. You know, civil rights, so, or civil rights was... Uh, passed in what 1969 and, and you know growing up in South Carolina and going into the deep south and um, you know into rural areas and seeing how people who were older generations of, of mine and how they treated minorities and how the and how all that still carried on for years even to, and in, in some um, some level into today but even into my late teens how those things um, how just the language was and, and, and that and it's just I, I, I hear what you're saying when you say people who hate one they really have hate in their heart and they're not having mm -hmm. empathy and understanding to really um, to really carry on so, so how do we lessen prejudice in our society well I think one thing is we lessen it by expanding our empathic range you know, I believe in empathy is the most important capacity to lead a, a, a successful personal and professional life. I mean, it, in, in business, in education, and in, in, in politics, we should be using empathy to understand what the people we're serving want and need. And even in close personal relationships, empathy allows you to really see beyond the surface. It doesn't, it doesn't make decisions based on how someone looks or how their resume reads. And it teaches us to not generalize, don't demonize, and don't make assumptions without facts. You know, prejudice thrives when objective facts are ignored. And empathy slows down a process. It's not a quick reaction like sympathy. Sympathy rushes in to console very quickly without really knowing the facts, assuming that what we're hearing is accurate. Empathy is thoughtful, and it's slow in the in sense of it... it it demands us to ascertain the facts, what really is true. And we can't listen to everything we hear and believe it now. I mean, that's what, that's what people in cults do. They believe whatever the leader says without examining the, the reality of it. I mean, in the book, I interviewed Christian Picciolini, you know, who was the, um, he was the second in command in white supremacist neo-Nazi groups in America. And, you know, he, he now runs a foundation where he tries to get young people out of these groups because he's learned over time as he expanded his empathic range. And I, I, I share my interview with him in the book, um, is that once he started interacting with Jewish people, with Muslim people, with gays, he realized that none of what he had heard was true. But as a young 14-year-old when he was recruited, he believed what he heard. And all I'm saying is that empathy allows us to ascertain the facts, to slow down and ascertain the facts, and it changes brain chemistry, which is an amazing thing, I think. You know, when I wrote The Power of Empathy in the year 2000, 
I sense that something happened to people's brains when you give and receive empathy, but I couldn't prove it. Today in 2020, we know through functional MRIs that empathy causes oxytocin, that near miracle neurotransmitter, to be released in our brains. What does oxytocin do? It reduces anxiety and stress cortisol levels. It helps us live longer, which relates very much to your work. It aids in recovery from illness and injury. It promotes a sense of calm and well-being. It increases generosity and empathy. It protects against heart disease, modulates inflammation. And very important, it reduces craving for addictive substances. It's very much related to weight gain. You know, when you have cortisol in your system, fat cells enlarge, and, and, it, and it requires the brain to have a desire for fatty and sugar substances. And oxytocin also creates bonding and increase in trust in others. It decreases fear. It makes people feel secure. It basically makes people open for love and connection. That's what happens when we give and receive empathy. When we have prejudice, what happens when we have prejudice? We produce a stress response. And then we produce the stress hormone cortisol. What does that do? Cortisol causes negative thinking. It causes weight gain for the reasons that I just mentioned. It enlarges fat cells in the body. It causes inflammation, hair loss. It breaks down muscle tissue, causes flabbiness, depression, anxiety, and it also causes memory loss. So we see that when we relate with empathy, we have a profound brain change. When we relate with prejudice, and fear and discrimination, we produce the stress response. And when you produce the stress response, it produces the hormone cortisol, which causes all those negative consequences. Hmm. So it's, it's very, very different in terms of longevity. How we relate has a lot to do with longevity because we're changing our brain depending on the way we, we relate. Right. I, I don't know if you're familiar with the Blue Zones. It's been around for a long time, but oh, yes, one, yeah. of the biggest, one of the biggest keys that uh, they found out through their research is community, which is yes. where we're, we don't have that so much in America. We don't even, in a lot of places, don't even know who our neighbors are. And, yes. um, and, and I think that this is what you're really talking about is how a community builds empathy and understanding um, and it really helps do this profound brain change that you just talked about and changes us physically because of the chemical release in our brains and, and all those things that are happening. Yeah. This is, uh, I, you just blew my mind. <laughs> you just blew, <laughs> totally blew it. <laughs> oh. well, well, it's interesting, so, Scott, because you're in, you're in Utah. And, you know, when there was, there was studies done regard, um, you know, after the blue zones, like where in America do people live longer? And right. people were guessing, oh, it must be in the warm areas, right? California, Florida. No, it wasn't. It was in Utah and Minnesota. Why? When they oh, examined wow. it closely, study from the School of Public Health at Harvard. Well, in Minnesota, they're mainly Lutherans. Lutherans stick together. In Utah, mainly Mormon population. Mormon, Mormons stick together. Then they tried to right. examine it. Was it the difference in religion or it was the community that those religions create? It was the communities that those religions create. In a Mormon community, if, if someone's sick, they'll say, hey, you know, who's going to take Mrs. Sierra McCauley to uh, her doctor's appointment next week? You might be taking my wife to her doctor's appointment because I have to work, and you don't even know her. But that's the way those communities work. It's the same way in, in Lutheran communities. And I'm sure others right. function that way too. But here it is. These are not the, the two warmest uh, states in the country but yet people were living the longest because of how they connect. And I think the key is, it probably isn't mentioned enough, the connecting changes brain chemistry. Brain chemistry either makes us live longer or it creates illness. You know, there was a study done at Children's um, Hospital in Boston, it's actually still ongoing, where psychologists and pediatricians would meet with families. The psychologists were just basically, child psychologists basically just observing. And they noticed that some parents yelled at their kids. And they noticed that some, you know, didn't. But they followed the families where, they, they, as, as they did more interviews, these were families where the parents yelled a lot. 
And these kids, as they reached adolescence, the telomeres, the end of chromosomes that shorten as we age, they had aged six to eight years more than their biological age. So if they were 15, on a cellular level, they were 21 or 23. That's how much that stress response that the parents were producing by their yelling affected them on a cellular level. So once we start to realize we're affecting our longevity and our health by the way we relate. It's not just it's not just yelling or passionately demeaning someone. We see that on TV all the time now and in tweets every day. But when you see those persons, ask yourself, does that look like a happy, serene person with self-worth? Why would a person have to be demeaning other people if they have solid self-worth? Or if they really have something to contribute to society? Why are they screaming? Why, why are they demeaning others? When people de- are demeaning others and it's a pattern in their lives, it's a function of profound inadequacy. Because what they're doing is they're finding the enemy outside of themselves rather than realize the enemy is within themselves. There's a profound discontent with their own self. And that's why they never look happy. They're always complaining about one group or another. And of course, they're the worst persons to be connected to in personal relationships or in professional relationships because eventually you'll become the enemy too. Wow. I, I think the biggest thing to think about is not only are we, are we uh, impacting our own you know, health right now in the moment and our longevity, but we're also impacting the longevity of our children and the people around yes. us because of the yes. stress we have and the lack of empathy and, and those things. And, and, you know, we may not, we may, we're passing down to our children a genetic code, but we're also passing down uh, a, a, a way of thinking, a way of life, uh, a way of eating, uh, and now a way of handling stress, either positive or negative, uh, uh, and, and also levels of empathy. And all of those are impacting uh, the health of our children and our future generations because we're passing those things down and programming those things into our children in the first six, seven years of their life, and it's getting replayed for the rest of their life, and they have to do some really deep work to really remove that if they have the awareness to do that. And I think that yes. that's one of the things to really, really understand there. Yes. So what benefits of being in a or, – or what are the benefits of being in a diverse environment? Well, we, we know, Scott, from credible studies, one study at Columbia from kids from K to 12, that kids that grew up in diverse schools – uh, you know, of all races, different religions, their cognitive skills were high, their critical thinking was higher, and their ability to problem solve was higher than ch- children that grow up in schools that are only of one group. We also know that from credible studies, World Health Organizations and others, that countries that highest in countries and communities that are highest in empathy, they're the healthier the healthiest, they have, they're the happiest, they're less prone to discriminate, they have higher levels of self-esteem, and they are far less likely to discriminate against anyone. And, and, the, and when the same was proven in that Columbia study with children, that in those diverse schools, they're far less likely to bully anyone. Because they grow up with people of difference and they find the similarities, they're sort of forced into that world. If you grow up in an all-white community, uh, in one particular part of the country. I mean, and then when you see someone who looks very different than you, people kind of pull back, adults and children. You know, we know that when people see unfamiliar faces, there's a reaction. People kind of uh, cower a little bit because they think, oh, you know, they don't feel as safe because they, they see difference on, on the surface. And we know that from studies, but we also know that when when people approach others that seem unfamiliar, that you find the common ground. I tell stories in the book about my our granddaughter Carmela, who's six years old, and you know I'm here in the southern coast of Maine, uh, vacationing with with grandchildren, and you know she approaches kids on the beach all the time. And she, last year she approached this one Indian girl who was very dark complexed, had a very dark complexion. And she played with her all day long and came back and said, you know, boy, Grampy, she's got a great tan. You know, I mean, there was no, no discrimination whatsoever because she's not been taught that by her parents. 
She's not been taught that by her grandparents. She's taught to go forward and find the common ground. And so it makes a big difference in terms of how you're raised in that regard. But we do react to unfamiliar faces initially, but exposure then reduces the prejudice. So empathy is so important. How can someone start the process of getting, you know, more empathy today or tomorrow? What, what is something that somebody could do to really move the needle? Well, I think the first thing you think about with empathy is slow down. Slow down. Because when we're reacting quick, quickly, we're usually reacting from old hurts or old conditioning. React slowly. Slow down so that you can even sense the, the emotional reaction that you're having. Say you meet somebody at a party or at a meeting, and automatically you feel uncomfortable with them. Well, before you start responding, ask yourself, how come? I don't even know that person. You know, years ago when I worked in a hospital, I had a one-way mirror where I had 10 people on one side of the room, 10 people on the other side, Scott. And the 10 people on one side, they were talking and interacting. And then my group on the other side, the, the, the group that was interacting, they, can, they, can't, they couldn't see us, but we could see them. So I said to the group I was with, tell me about those 10 people. And of course, initially they all felt uncomfortable and thought it was ridiculous. And I said, no, no, come on. And you know, I, I encouraged them, do you know by the end of that session, hour and a half session, they were writing a book about those people. That person's an accountant. I bet that guy's a blue-collar guy. I bet that person's in construction. I bet she's a model. And all kinds of things that had nothing to do with the reality because I knew the people on the other side. And it went to show that just by looking at people, we have all these unconscious ideas. But, but when we focus on awareness, we learn more about what they are. So if I'm a guy who bullied you in grammar school, and, I happen to, and, and you happen to see somebody who looks like me, of course you're going to have a reaction. Or if you just went through a divorce and you see someone who looks like your ex-wife, you're going to have a reaction. But when you slow down, which is what empathy teaches, you realize, oh, that's not the same person. You know, so what if she looks like my ex-wife or my ex-husband or the person who bullied me or the person who fired me? It's not the same person. But when you don't even have the awareness to slow down and, and, and take inventory, you make decisions very quickly. And then you might walk away from that person. Or you might shun that person. You might act like you don't want to be involved with them. And you don't even know why because you haven't asked yourself why. So those are important questions. Empathy first to slow down and then to build awareness when you do slow down. And again, empathy teaches us to not generalize that it is the capacity to understand the unique experiences of another. Every human being in the world is unique. No two Italians, no two Irish people, no two Muslims, no two Jews are the same. You know, I heard a reporter say a few weeks ago on a, a newscast, um, they were talking about the black vote, and he, he was a black journalist, and he says, you know, sometimes I have to laugh, laugh about the black vote. He said, do you know all black people don't vote the same? We actually don't even think the same. <laughs> he said, sometimes when you talk about the black vote, the white vote, you know, as if we're all in that category because of the color of our skin, we all vote the same way. And I thought that was a great point. I mean, in, in, in interfaith communities, they really emphasize the uniqueness of each other. I mean, they don't walk up to each other and say, hi, Muslim, hi, Jew, hi, Christian. They, they know the person's name and who they are because they don't assume that any one person represents an entire group. That's part of empathy. So um, is that how interfaith communities can reduce prejudice and, and hate? Yes, because interfaith communities are very open to learning from each other. Um, I, I was fascinated by, you know, when I, when I, when I did a book signing for the Soulful Leader, uh, I had a Sikh in the audience, a Jewish man, a Christian, and a Protestant. And, and ironically, after the talk, the four of them stayed because I said, if anybody wants to stay and, you know, just talk a little bit more, they, they did stay. And that's how I got involved in interfaith group. And here I, here I am sitting there with four people of different religions, all curious about each other's religion. All curious about, you know, there's a book written by a minister called Holy Envy. And her, what, what she means by Holy Envy, I, I talk about her book at the end of mine, uh, is that 
she envies the things that other religions focus on that hers didn't or the insights that the other religions have that hers didn't at the same time she didn't give up Christianity but she's learning from others and incorporating them into hers <coughs> and why not why have to pick a group why have to pick a party why have to pick a, a, a a particular part of the country and say you know the other parts I'm against you know the quote that I start this book with <coughs> from Thomas Paine is um, my religion is to do good my country is the world and, and that's my favorite quote and you know when Thomas Paine wrote a book based on that quote that he was ostracized in America because they said he was not nationalistic enough and he had to go to England in fact I believe he died in England because that was seen as heresy my country is the world. My religion is to do good. What is wrong with that? What if we had that philosophy now? We, we, yeah, we're not okay. separate from the Chinese or the Europeans or the Asians. We're all people. Just think if we were fighting COVID together rather than part, partitioning one group on one side and we're on the other. The Chinese flu. What, what could have started in America, could have started anywhere. I mean, this is going to go on for years because of climate change we're going to have other viruses and who knows where they're going to originate you know it's one well, globe it is we if we didn't learn anything from this virus other than the fact that we are one then we as a as a society culture as a as a people really didn't pay attention i mean my wife and I were standing to go in line to go into a store. We're, of course, standing on the tape line. We're six feet away from everybody, forwards and backwards. And the wind happened to be blowing um, from our back. And I could smell every breath I took in. I could smell the perfume from the lady behind me. Mm-hmm. So it didn't matter that we're six feet apart. I'm bre- if she has the virus, I'm breathing it in. So I actually moved to the right far enough to where I couldn't smell her perfume every breath, right? Mm-hmm. So I had to be offset from the people to, to, to be able to, to do that. And, and that lady could have been on an airplane the night before. She coming from who knows where, right? Yes. Um, yes. It, it's, it, we are connected and we are one and things can spread. Now, there's a couple of things about what you just said that are, are – um, enlightening to me. I, I think of um, Bruce Lee a couple times in this because you talked about um, slowing down. He actually has a quote where um, that says, if you start to get emotional, basically breathe um, and uh, let it pass by and respond with logic. And so I thought that that was really interesting that it was very similar. And he was probably writing that stuff in the 60s uh, yeah. when he was writing his book. And, and the other thing is that about the holy envy made me think about how Bruce Lee actually took the best of, of all these um, different martial arts to create his one own unique art for him and where she actually is taking the best of all these different religions and putting them together to build her yeah. own best way of living. And, yeah. you know, I, I started in December, I started doing transcendental meditation and in the beginning of the presentation that I went to, they said, this is not a spiritual thing. It's not a religion thing. This is meditation. So you can practice any religion you want, and even though in some religions they do practice meditation. And then, you know, I've been intermittent fasting for eight and a half years, and, you know, like one of the blue zones, original blue zones, is uh, Lord Belinda, California, and there's a seven-day mm-hmm. Adventist, and they are vegetarian, and they practice fasting every week. And, yes. Um, and so it's really an interesting thing to where we can pull the best from religion or best from you know, um, different martial arts or or best things from people from around the world, like even in the blue zone example or those type of things, to build our own best way of living today without prejudice and, and by understanding and having empathy for what works for them. Um, and, and so, you know, you, you're saying that the virus could have, um, you could have uh, originated anywhere in the world. We call it the Chinese virus. Some people do. I, I, I don't, but... Um, and we all look to where it originated there. But I was working in Santa Monica, California uh, in February, and my, the call-outs at the restaurant that I was managing were um, escalating rapidly in the length of time that people were out 
had expanded to over a week. I had people who hadn't missed work since the 90s coming to me and saying, that's the sickest I've ever been here mm. in Park City, Utah, right after Sundance, uh, which is in the, in the last 10 days of January. Um, and so the first weeks of February, again, February, people who don't even miss work. I talked to people here, they're friends of mine, in some of the places I've worked in the past said we had people who don't even miss work. They were out sick uh, mm. and they were the sickest they've ever been. So yes. we didn't really admit that it was here until March, but yeah. there are two places that I were living that it hit in February. And so you're right. It could have, it could have originated even before that from different places in the world, but we have, predetermined that has come from China. We're just sticking with that. And then your client is getting yelled at who's never even been to China in Massachusetts. Yeah. That's really, yeah. really bad. So um, how, how do leaders affect our prejudice? Well, you know, leaders, you know, as I mentioned earlier, Scott, they, they, their, their way of leading trickles down and influences people dramatically. You know, 70%, I wrote in The Soul for Leaders, 70% of American workers wake up in the middle of the night. 70%, 7 out of 10, because of stress about going to work the next day. And we found in, in, in The Soul for Leader that the research shows that the people who work for soulful leaders, and, I, and the, the subtitle of the book is Success with Authenticity, Integrity, and Empathy, the people that work for those people, soulful leaders, what I call soulful leaders, they, would, they were willing to work for 10 to 15% less because they were happy to go to work. What happens when you're happy? You have oxytocin, serotonin, the positive neurochemicals in your system, and people are more creative. Many leaders, when we know that three to five, some studies say three to five corporate leaders are toxic. Some say two to five. But that's a pretty high percentage. When you work for a toxic leader, and toxic leaders usually lead, and politicians are the same way, toxic leaders lead through fear and aggression. They don't lead through integrity and authenticity and honesty. And ironically, there's a, there's a group in England that does studies of Fortune 500 companies of who, who makes the most profits. And you would think that the, you know, one of the predictions is, oh, well, these companies that accent these soft skills, they're probably at the bottom. No, they were 40% higher than groups that had the lowest level of empathy. And the, the most common workshops now in the corporate world are in empathy and diversity. The problem is they don't last long enough. That they don't have the continuity. You know, someone comes in and leads a group like that or does a lecture and then they're gone and six months later people forget what was taught to them. But toxic leaders do the same thing as when we were talking about releasing the stress response and cortisol, which reduces people's ability to be creative. It actually creates very narrow thinking and cortisol creates very obsessive, repetitive thinking. When you have a soulful leader, you produce positive neurochemicals which expand creativity, expand you looking at the market and knowing what people really want and need. So, and diverse groups do the same thing because, look, if you have 10 white men who are 50 years old in a room trying to figure out what to bring to market in a particular software company, you, you don't get a lot of variance. If you have 10 people of, of different color, different ethnicities, different cultures, different religion, you're looking at the whole world. So obviously that's why those companies do better. But politically, it's the same thing. When you lead politically through honesty, authenticity, and have integrity, people can't wait to follow you. They can't wait to hear what you say the next day, to follow your leadership, to follow your insight. Because soulful leaders are very good at resolving conflict. You know, they're the ones that people look to in conflict because they employ empathy. They don't reach to conclusions right away. <coughs> they don't act right away. When I was a director of a department, and I'm not complimenting myself, I just tried to use these <coughs> techniques. If you had a conflict with Dr. Jones, I would call you both in together. I didn't want to talk to you one alone. I'd say, okay, let's bring Dr. Jones in. Sometimes people would say, well, I don't, I don't want to have a meeting with him. And I said, well, your conflict is with him, so we're going to have a meeting with him. 
And when I, when I had people that were acted more entitled, like some doctors would come into work, you know, we started at eight, they'd come in at quarter or nine. Or I'd get messages from patients that this doctor takes phone calls from his wife during sessions and stays on the phone for 10 or 15 minutes. And I would tell people, I'd say, you know, if you keep doing this, I'm going to have to let you go. But if you, you know, get in line and come in at the same time as everyone else, no one is more special than anyone else here. I don't care whether you have an MD, a PhD, or whatever it is. We're all in this together. But remember, if you continue to act in these ways, in these entitled ways, when you're, when you're released, you're firing yourself. I'm not firing you. I don't want to fire you. I don't like to fire people. So when it came to that, if you still, you know, waltz in at 9 o'clock when the rest of us are at work at 8, and then I say, I'm letting you go, you're firing me? I would say, no, I'm not firing you. You're firing yourself. We talked about it, you got a warning, and you refused to adhere. So, no, I'm not firing you, you're firing yourself. That's what soulful leaders do. They do that's, things with respect. That's yeah. And I, and I, when I would have to fire somebody, I really would try to, you know, I would tell them, you know, I didn't use the exact verb as you did, but I would listen to them. I wanted them to feel like they were heard. Uh, yes. And I got critiqued by that negatively where I would just other people that were in the room to witness it would say, you've got to just really end this and get them out of the building. And I was like, no, I just they're a human. I want them to feel like they're they're heard. Um, one of the things that I had read years ago was a study on why people quit their jobs. And 80 percent of people quit their jobs because of their direct supervisor. And yes. it's. And I would always, when somebody resigned, I would always, since I've learned that, I would ask, you know, why are you leaving and, and those type of things. And I would reflect and see if there's anything that I could have done differently uh, to, to to grow as a leader or to learn from it if it was something that wasn't like. And you have to think the turnover rate in restaurants is, you know, um, the national average is 75% this last year. Mm. So there was a lot of people they were getting fired and there's a lot of people who were moving on because it's an entry level job. They may have graduated from college and got a real, got their, what they would call a real job, right? Cause restaurants aren't called real jobs. Um, even though I did it for almost 30 years, but, wow. um, but I think that has a lot to do for fear and aggression type leadership is that that's why that 80% of people leave. Yes. And, yes. And, go well, ahead. How can you, I mean, you're living under that roof every day, you know, and it just gets wearing. And when you're living with someone in, in an environment where you're working together and you realize this person has great interest in teasing out your potential, um, it's, it's very, it, very enlive, it enlivens the spirit. The other way of, of leading destroys your spirit. Same in, a, same in a family as parents, the same thing. You know, when you're yelling and screaming at kids, as we, as we were talking before, and you're shrinking their telomeres, you're aging them prematurely, of course, because nobody likes to be yelled at. Right. You don't have to demean someone to get them to perform. And we're seeing a lot of that in our current climate. You demean the other person, you'll get your way, and that's the way to influence. Well, you're only going to influence well, a very small amount of people that way. Well, it, it rolls downhill, right? Because what happens is you're getting yelled at from the person above you and you're expected to deliver these certain amount of numbers. Then the company that you work for, the ones you worked for over the years, aren't teaching you leadership and empathy. They're just saying that you have to deliver on this result or you're going to get fired. You know what the result is. So yes. you're fearful and then therefore you become aggressive and then you then it, then it goes downhill. And then even I, this is the thing, the customer feels that. Right. Yes, I don't care yes. if it's somebody on the phone that's trying to hit a sales number or if it's a server table side at a restaurant that is trying to, to push a wine promotion that that you have to, to, to win a competition that in the in grand scheme of thing really means nothing. Right. Yes. The customer's feeling sold to and pushed on and and feels the aggression that somebody that may be at a corporate office halfway across the country had yelled at somebody on a conference call. And then the GM gets, and then it trickles down and does those things. And so it, it just, it, it trickles down from, from all of those things into the customer experience. Yes. 
I mean, yeah. you've been through so, this. I, I think the restaurant business, and, and I've worked with you know different restaurant owners over the time in my career, and it's a tough, tough business, Scott. I mean, you have to manage so many variables, so many people. Um, and and you you're I mean what you said before you that turnover I mean all of a sudden your chef doesn't show up and I mean it, it's all hands on it's it's a very difficult environment but when people respect you um, as I'm sure they did with you then they want to come in they stay longer you see companies where people are there 20 30 years still and you say oh my God that's so unusual today I mean today by the time people are 40 they've had seven eight jobs. Years ago, um, you might have had two. You know, people right. worked at General Motors and other places like that for 30, 40 years. But the turnover is, is a lot higher with toxic leaders, just like you see in the political world. You, you look at cabinets and people at governors and, and the people they've hired in the beginning of their tenure, and uh, a year later, year and a half later, none of those people are there anymore. How come? I mean, doesn't that say something about the leader, that everybody's been fired? And you hired them. You were praising these people you brought in, and now now you don't want them anymore. Now most of the time you don't want them anymore because they have a voice of their own. They disagree with you, and toxic leaders, narcissistic leaders, don't want people to agree with them. They want people who will aggrandize them, who will adore them, and just idealize them. And when they're not idealized, they get furious and they want you out the door. That's huge. It really is. Um, you, you know, I my dad worked at, you know, two two jobs his entire uh, adulthood, you know, other than working for his dad who owned his business. So I'd say three jobs that I know of, maybe four. But he worked his last one for 32 years. Uh, wow. My mom worked a job for 28 years before she got early retirement. And, you know, for me, I... Um, you know, I have more longevity in certain places of restaurants. My normal time is about three years in a restaurant um, where, you know, I see a lot of people's resumes that are half that, year and a half uh, time, and they kind of bounce around and move around. But um, there's direct correlations to the length of tenure of a general manager and the profitability, the cross-training, guest satisfaction, employee satisfaction. Uh, and, and I have another podcast called the Restaurant General Manager Podcast that I interviewed um, Ryan Atterhoff from Pizza Ranch, which is a, a company in the Midwest that has 214 franchises. And uh, they did a lot of deep dive studies on those things. And it was really, really enlightening uh, to, to see those numbers. And, and, mm-hmm. and so, but I want to get back really to, to your, your work because I didn't want to get off there because I really um, – I, I think that the biggest piece of the puzzle when it comes to our, our health and longevity is mindset. And one of the mm-hmm. things that you talked about in uh, the book Stress Solution was um, how we're addicted to negative self-talk. So can you really expand on self-talk and how we're addicted to this, how we talk to ourselves? Well, I, I think I wrote a chapter on self-talk in both books, these, The Soulful Leader and this book, Diversity, mm-hmm. because I think the way you talk to yourself affects the way you interact with other people. And, and, I, and I said in that book, you know, you and I were talking earlier that I think the greatest addiction of all is addiction to our own negative thinking because it's so hard to change and we can't change it alone because we're so subjective. Um, and we need feedback from other reasonable people. That's why I, I've had leadership and communication groups ongoing for over 30 years. Because when people come in, they may think one thing about themselves. They may think they're great and they're not. And they think they're terrible and they're not. And we, we make these determinations of our, about ourselves very early in life. And I, I always say that I think we write a novel about ourselves early in life. And then later in life, we have to make it a nonfiction book. Because if you're looking in the mirror, you know, we look in mirrors when we're, when we're young. And to see who we are, we don't know who we are. But if you're looking in a mirror that's cracked, you get a cracked reflection of yourself. You get a distorted reflection of yourself. And I've seen so many people in my career, Scott, and in my personal life where people didn't think they were athletic or they didn't think they could speak or they didn't think they were intelligent enough or attractive enough or whatever enough. And then they find out over time when their potential is teased out that that was never true. It was never true. But I do believe that most people go to their grave never knowing. They never even knew what they were capable of because most of us go through life believing what we learned early in life. 
when it comes to prejudice, but not only prejudice against others, prejudice about ourselves. Prejudice about ourselves. When I was a senior in high school, my guidance counselor told me, you know, you're an athlete, but you're not a scholar. You're, you're, you know, you're not a good student. He said to me, I had some scholarships to play football at some different colleges, and he said to me that he advised me not to go. He said that, you know, if you go, you're going to embarrass your school, your community, and your family. And he gave me brochures for the Army, Navy, Coast Guard, and Air Force and told me to go home, talk to my parents, and pick one of them. And, uh, you know, that, and I, I was walking through the town park that day um, and thinking, and I had tears in my eyes thinking, you know, I'm not going to college. What am I going to do? Um, and, you know, luckily I told my dad that, and my dad, who never went to college either, um, uh, immediately said to me, well, we'll go in and talk to that person tomorrow. And I said, no, 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 I don't want you going in talking. You know, my, my, I was just afraid that he was going to go in. I didn't want to hear this negative feedback again. And my dad went in and he put on his suit, which he only wore to weddings and funerals, so I knew this was very serious. And he came in and he listened to Mr. Martin go on and on about, you know, how college kids and how, what you needed to do to go to college and so forth. And he said the same thing to my dad that he said to me. And Mr. Martin had two big degrees on the wall. You know, one was a bachelor's degree, one was a master's degree. So at the end of the talk, my father got up, he shook his hand, he goes, I want to thank you very much. You've made it very clear to me. I know exactly what to do with my son now. And Mr. Martin said, oh, well, I'm glad you agree. He said, oh, no, 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 I don't agree. What I realize is that you got two of those college degrees, and I listened to the way you think, and now I know my son can go to college. Wow. That's huge because that could have changed the – I mean, gosh, you got to think. What you're, You definitely are a scholar, right? You, but definitely could have changed the whole trajectory of your life if you would have listened to the guidance counselor. You know, and, and how often that happens, Scott. I mean, whether it's a guidance counselor, a mother, a father, a coach, uh, our, our music teacher, when we're young, we take it in. I believed what I was told. Why wouldn't I? I didn't know anybody who went to college. The only people I knew who went to college were our teachers and our coaches. But I didn't know anybody personally. I didn't know what it was like. I was not a good student. I, I didn't really apply myself. My parents didn't ask about our homework, things like that. You know, they both worked full time. So it was a world unknown to me. So I took the advice of someone who was in that world. And I think that's a lot of what we do until we decide to find out who we are and get in empathic relationships where we can get reasonable, factual information about who we are. Because, you know, <coughs> excuse me, there's that old saying that a good friend tells you what you need to hear and not what you want to hear. And I think that should happen in any good friendship. It does, for sure. So what did you learn from your dad when he, in this experience, when he went and talked to the guidance counselor? Well, I, I learned that even though he wasn't a college person, I mean, he said to the guidance counselor, I'm not a college man, but I realized he could think, and he took his time. You know, my father was in the OSS, the forerunners of the CIA. He had 13 jumps in enemy territory during World War II as a paratrooper. So my father could react very intensely, but he did have the ability to listen first. And what he was doing was, even though I didn't know a label, I didn't know how to put a label on it at the time, he was listening empathically, Scott. He was gathering facts. And he was listening to how this man thinks with a bachelor's and master's degree. And he was not impressed. And he realized that if this person thinks this way, why can't my kid go to college? But first, rather than getting defensive, as a lot of parents would do, and start arguing with him, he didn't want to argue with him. He wanted to understand, how did you come to this point of view? And that's exactly what I do today in my life whenever I face someone who's prejudiced. You know, when I, when I hear someone tell me something that I know doesn't make sense, like one of my clients that I talked about in the book said, you know, we were talking about <clears throat> black athletes because, you know, he, he had seen some ath athletes in my office in the waiting room, professional athletes who I had been treating, and he said, you know, I know you treat some, some black athletes. And he said, you know, dogs don't like, and then was a dog barking outside my home office, and the window was open in the summer. And he said, you know, um, Dogs don't like black people. 
And I said, what? I said, how did you come to learn that? He said, well, on my street, when I grew up, there was a black family at the end of the street, way down the corner. And my mother said, don't ever take the dogs down there. Dogs don't like black people. Now, this is a 56-year-old CEO, okay? And I said to him, who's a nice guy? He's not, not naturally a prejudiced person. And I said to him, did you ever take the dogs down there? No. I said, did you ever see the, a black person with a dog? He said, no. He said, now you're making me feel embarrassed. I said, I'm not trying to embarrass you. It's just another lesson about the things we learn and we encode in a deep part of the brain early on in our lives that have no valid bearing whatsoever. Because what you're saying, you know, is not true. And he said, well, have you had an experience? I said, I have a black uncle, and we call him the dog whisperer because he trained all our dogs. And dogs love him. So, <laughs> no, I had never heard that dogs don't like black people. And, of course, he knows now today that's not true. But if I had got mad and attacked him and hadn't been listening empathically the same way as my dad with that counselor, we wouldn't have had that conversation and we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have unlearned. You know, I try to teach people that a lot of growing in life is unlearning. You know, people think you're always going to focus on what's wrong with them if you're a psychologist. No, I don't, I, I'm more interested in focusing on what's right with you that you haven't uncovered yet. That's where potential is. That is so profound. A lot of growing in life is unlearning. I'm actually writing that down because, uh, man, that is that just really hit home with me. And, and wow, that's uh, a. <laughs> well, if I, I hadn't I done thinking. some unlearning, Scott, you and I wouldn't be talking. <laughs> well, the same thing for me too, right? Uh, you know, my, you know what led me to becoming a modern longevitarian was both of my parents getting cancer in their 50s. Now, both my parents are cancer survivors, and my dad's 71 wow. now, and um, my mom turned 70 uh, early next year. And, and what I did was start with the premise of I can control what I put on and in my body. Mm -hmm. and, and that means that I could change my diet and I can, you know, pay attention to chemicals and toxins that I put on my body. And this was 15, 16 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I had to unlearn how to eat and relearn mm. how to eat and uh, unlearn, you know, things like I was told is like, you're going to be fat like your grandfather. Right. And I've lost 40 pounds twice. And I had to wow. unlearn, unlearn, you know, that we are supposed to eat three meals a day with snacks in between and relearn that intermittent fasting is the secret to me maintaining my weight and mm -hmm. actually can, and performing better and thinking better. And um, I had to unlearn about eating carbs and, and I've been on the ketogenic diet for four and a half years. I had to other things, unlearn that if you go outside without a jacket on, you'll catch cold. Now I do the Wim Hof method and cold exposure and I'll go on, you know, a two and a half mile hike up a mountain with it snowing with no shirt on and shorts and just, you know, some sneakers on. I dress basically no different summer or winter and I don't get sick. I haven't been sick in, in years and I've been doing that practice. And so, mm -hmm. so those are, those are growing in life is unlearning. And, and that is basically the process that I've been going through for decades now. And that's really even even as a leader, even as a dad, you know, my son's 18, my daughter's turns 13 next month, and so, and a husband, you know, um, unlearning those things and then relearning how to do it in a different way that, that works better. Mm -hmm. um, so, Dr. Sierra McCauley, before I ask my last question, where can people find you online? Well, my, my website, Scott, is balanceyoursuccess.com. I'm also on Facebook and LinkedIn, just under my name. My Twitter handle is DocAPC, but balanceofsuccessyoursuccess.com is the easiest way to reach me. Okay, I'll put all those links in the show notes. In my last question, I ask this to every guest. If you could give one piece of advice on how they can extend their health span or the prime years of their life, what would that one piece of advice be? I would say the most important thing is to expand your empathic range because I think more than any other capacity, empathy allows you to know who to get close to, 
people remain distant from, how to make decisions based on facts, objective facts. It promotes longevity and your health, and it allows you to listen and gain information from diverse people and diverse sources. So I think empathy is the most important capacity for a successful life personally and professionally, without a doubt. That is absolutely amazing advice, and I couldn't agree more. Empathy is a common thread that really binds everything together. I've seen it in multiple different publications, whether it's marriage and relationships, to how to hire people for emotional intelligence, uh, to be a better leader, to be a better parent. Uh, it's, um, and this is the first connection talking to you that I've seen about how it, uh, empathy can help us physically. And so I can't thank you enough for bringing that to, to me, my family, and then the listeners of the Modern Longevitarian. So, uh, well, Dr. thank Sam, you very much, Scott. You. It's been a pleasure to interact with you, and uh, I admire all the changes you've made, and uh, I'm sure your listeners do as well. It's, thank you very much. It means a lot. So I, I can't thank you enough for your time and coming on the show. You're welcome. You be well. The statements expressed in this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice. Thank you for listening to The Modern Longevitarian. Please show your support by giving us a kind review and subscribing. You can also learn so much more about increasing the quality of your life today and the quantity of your life tomorrow at our website, modernlongevitarian.com. You can also join our private Facebook group at the link in the show notes. Come back next week for another amazing episode of The Modern Longevitarian.